This is the Six Figure Creative Podcast, episode 176. Welcome to the Six Figure Creative Podcast, where our mission is to help you turn your creative passions into a stable, reliable income. If you're in audio, video, design, photography, or really any other creative field, and you just want to learn from other successful creatives, you're in the right place. Welcome back to another episode of the Six Figure Creative Podcast. I am your host, Brian Hood, and this week I am not with my big, bald, beautiful co-host, Chris Graham. He is out uh, on this interview. But uh, today's interview, we have an incredible conversation we're going to have with our guest, Mr. Daniel Clark Cunningham, who has who's a photographer based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. He was actually connected uh, with me through our past guest and past substitute co-host Mark Eckert, who we've had on the podcast multiple times now. Daniel was actually also the guy who married Mark and his wife, Shira. So when I was at the wedding, he was the, uh, what, what would you call yourself, Daniel, in that wedding? Probably the just the officiant. The officiant. Yeah, yeah. So I, I've, I've met you before, sort of kind of through that sort of situation. But, but Daniel is not here just because he's a wedding officiant. He's here because he's a photographer, a successful photographer who has worked with the likes of Goodyear, Discovery, TLC, the TV channel with all the good stuff. Belk, uh, he's worked with the city of Charlotte, which is, I would have guessed, is a pretty big deal if you live in Charlotte. Victory Records, which is a hilarious throwback to my old days back in the like hardcore and metal world. It's like a predominantly heavy music record label. Chevy, and then the world's largest CRM, Salesforce. I really want like a very big hodgepodge, I'd say, of client lists. So I kind of want to get into that. But I thought it'd be cool to bring Daniel on to talk about what it, what it takes to make it as a photographer and getting up to these bigger and bigger uh, projects. Because not... The, I would say the average photographer is not working with that sort of client list. So first of all, I just wanted to say thank you for coming on the podcast, Daniel. I'm looking forward to chatting with you. Yeah, me too. You're welcome. It's, I'm super excited about this. Really, like I kind of give you a, a little rough introduction there, but I, I think it's, it's probably easier for you to just say, like, give, the, give our audience an idea of what you do and who you work with. So I'm a commercial portrait photographer at my core. That's like the niche. I, I like making photos of people. So... If I'm like Goodyear, for example, was to photograph Dale Earnhardt Jr. because they were doing a giveaway. So like win two free tickets to the next race and meet Dale and get some autograph stuff as well as him standing with tires for standees that would go in uh, Goodyear stores. And getting into that kind of work, Charlotte's NASCAR city as far as like Concord with the Hall of Fame is here. So it was just kind of a gradual progression. I used to assist on all these jobs. I've assisted photographers from all over the world been to Brazil twice to work with uh, a good buddy of mine in LA. And it, it just sort of gave me uh, a good look into this other world of photography because I don't like shooting weddings and I don't really want to photograph children portraits. Not that it's, there's a lot of great people who do it, but they're passionate about doing that. And it's not something I'm passionate about. Yeah. So, so your website, you actually, it's buried on your site. So shame on you for that. But you have a really good line on your about page that says, we create high quality portraits for use in marketing and advertising. I feel like that's a really good kind of value proposition because it seems like while you're, you don't seem to have so much of a, of a niche as far as who you work with, because all those people are in wildly different industries. It seems like you've, you've, you've narrowed down that one thing is creating high quality portraits to use in marketing and advertising. So I think really like I would love to kind of get into your story about how you got into photography in the first place and how you've gradually worked up to that. How how did you get your start in photography? Let's start there. I mean, it's kind of a cliche, but like when I was a young kid, my dad had a 35 millimeter camera that I was fascinated with. Mechanical. It was a Nikon SE2, I think. I just started playing around with that and he got kind of frustrated that I was using his camera all the time. So for Christmas, I got my own 35 millimeter camera. And just shot all the time. 
banquet. I could go to Costco and drop my rolls off and get them processed fairly cheaply. And I went to Paris on a school trip. I think I shot like 40 rolls of film. And then I graduated high school and was like, well, I guess I'll go to business school. My dad's like, yeah, that's a good, good choice. And I hated it. Ended up just taking art classes. And then finally, one of my photo teachers was like, you should check out this community college in Asheboro, North Carolina. And it's kind of like a diamond in the rough. It was founded by a guy that went to RIT, which is probably the creme de la creme of photo schools. And he wanted an affordable option. So I went there, spent two years, got an associate's degree in commercial photography, and then started assisting anybody that would have me just to see what's going on. Yeah. So how did you, let's, let's talk about that. So you, you went the, I would say like traditional, non-traditional, because I'd say most photographers I know actually didn't go to school for this. So I'd say that's the non-traditional side, but the traditional side is after high school, it is expected that you go to college. So that's the traditional side. So you kind of blended the two paths and you went into commercial photography. That was your, your associate's degree. How, how did you actually land assisting gigs after that? Because I can tell you right now, when I, when, when I first had my studio in Nashville and I had all these interns trying to get like internships with me, I didn't want to deal with most of them because like, if anything, a college degree meant I, I had to unteach. You had, like, you had to unlearn all these horrible things before you could actually provide value to me. So how did you overcome that sort of obstacle as a new, a fresh out of college student? One was the reputation of the school. Anybody that's a photographer on the East Coast, especially in Charlotte, knows about this school. And the school has a list of people that accept interns, know what they're getting into. And a lot of them were alumni. So it's kind of a bit of a giving back situation plus free and or cheap labor. Like I mopped a lot of floors where it's like, oh great, you're here. Make us coffee and like the typical intern route. Cause we had to do two internships in order to graduate. So we spent 16 weeks total in internship land. And it was awesome. One of them I did with a production company. So they would just book me out on anything that needed an assistant. So that's how I got into doing NASCAR work is they provided gear production support, assistance, anything that was needed, they could take care of it. And most often the photographers would come in from New York, LA, Europe, and they would it'd be Coca-Cola for DBDO. And I was just the local lowliest assistant, carry all the stuff, don't talk to anybody. But I got to see a lot. I mean, you can learn so much just from observation that I got a lot of time seeing how a photographer would work with a subject how to establish a rapport, how to deal with NASCAR drivers or just talent in general that is, their image is everything. And they're very particular about Danica Patrick for one. She's awesome, but she's very particular on how she's lit. And she will tell a photographer, nope, that's not how it's going to go. And then she'll tell them where to put the light. And the really good photographers with low ego levels, they let it happen because they're there to provide a service and do a good job, not make it about them. So some could navigate it, some couldn't. And you can kind of feel that tension when they don't want to navigate it well. So how long did you do this assistant role before you started to kind of move up in the ranks? I probably about eight years. And it was kind of like a shift of, I wasn't making enough money shooting, but I mean, I could assist. It got to like a pain point where it was like, I'm tired of dealing with someone's BS and then I just kind of woke up one day and was like, I'm just not going to take assisting gigs anymore. And if I do get asked to assist, I'm going to give them a ridiculous rate. And if they want to pay a ridiculous rate, then, hey, I'll be there. Otherwise, no thanks. Yeah, I feel like that was the same, the same kind of thing I did in 2015 when I decided I'm not going to 
produce bands anymore. I'm just going to do mixing and mastering gigs as a producer or as a, in the music world. They just, it's just a different service for those who are not familiar. And what I first started doing was I started pricing people out of it. And it was that exact same thing. It was, I looked at my business, I realized I'm spending 80% of my time doing all this work that's providing like 20% of my income. And so I'm just going to cut it out or better yet, I'm going to price appropriately what I should be charging. And if people won't pay that, then I just won't do the project. So I think that's a really good way to naturally transition away because if someone's willing to pay that, and you know what's funny, I got people to pay that. That like the the, the price that I was trying to not, do the work at all, people were still willing to pay, which is a huge surprise to me. I'm not sure if you got that at all, Daniel, but it was a good way for me to transition away from the things I didn't really want to do and start putting all my time, effort, energy into these projects that I actually wanted to do in the services, which for me was mixing and mastering, which is common in the metal world. So you started pressing people out. You had that feeling, that thing tugging at you. It's like, you're not going to be doing this anymore. First of all, like I can see why eight years is a long time to do that. But was there any sort of like big thing or any sort of like what was what's the what's the phrase the term you use the uh like a tipping point yeah the tipping point the straw broke this camel's back what was the thing that that was there was there one or was it just kind of a gradual thing i i think it was like the own fulfillment of me personally and like do you want to be in a because there's plenty of people that are full-time assistants like there are some digital technicians out there that they build these incredible computer rigs they have all the gear you hire them and the joke is that like sometimes the Digitech makes more money than the photographer because of all the rentals and everything else, but it's still, it's not your show. And I wanted to make things personally and produce photo shoots, not for like, I guess, ego reasons, but more just like it's what I've set out to do. And I wasn't doing it the way I wanted to do it yet. How did you start building the confidence that you could start to turn down those gigs that you didn't want to do, the assisting jobs? Like, What, what was it that, that gave you the confidence to do that? Because I know so many people that are in that position, it may not be assisting in photography, but it is something. It is something that they don't want to do, but they don't have the confidence to leave it behind to pursue the thing they actually want to pursue. It was a, I told myself that in the very beginning, it's like, I'm going to make $500 a week with my camera, not assisting. And so I just started like, leave no stone unturned kind of thing. Like just kept trying to get in front of as many people as I could advertise myself. It was like, it's the one thing that's not great about a technical photo school or I guess any school is like they teach you one skill, but you need four other skills to actually make that one skill work for you. So had a lot of conversations with friends that were doing well and you know, what was a breaking point for them and, or what was helpful. And it really kind of just turned into putting myself out there and it might be woo woo, but like self-talk and like, you know what you're doing, like imposter syndrome, be damned, like just go for it. And if you put everything you can into it, it's going to work out because hopefully you'll just outwork everybody else. Yeah. So there's uh there's something I, I listen to podcasts probably more than anyone else that I know. And I, I heard a, a, I've heard something on a podcast recently that, that caught my ear and it was, if we can't grow as a business owner, it's because of one of three things. It's because we lack the skills, we, we lack the character traits, or we lack the beliefs. And we have to have all three to get past certain roadblocks because I, I don't know about you and your business, Daniel, maybe we'll get into this further in our, in our conversation here, but me throughout my life in my career, like I have hit these big plateaus and, and in every single instance, 
I was the bottleneck and it was one of those three things. It was a skill that I lacked that I had to learn, or it was a character trait that I didn't have that I had to learn, or it was some sort of belief that I didn't have that I needed in order to break through that bottleneck. And, and from the, from the sounds of it, it sounds like for you, that was getting through the belief first, believing that you could actually do it. I don't think it's woo. woo I think it takes all three. If you just focus on the beliefs, it's woo woo. But if you focus on the character traits and skills, it's no longer woo. woo it's just being an entrepreneur. So you, you had this kind of, you had the feeling, you had the confidence that you could make it work, the belief that you could make it work. You had the skills that you had developed along the way, which is super interesting because you said that we our, our motto here is like, it takes more than passion. I feel like so many people come out of this, they're passionate about one thing, they have a skill in one thing and they don't learn the other 36 skills or whatever it is to, to become an entrepreneur, which I get. But let's let's keep moving down the story. Line. You, you, you made this leap. What was the effect? You started turning these projects down. You said you had to make something like 500 bucks a week to make this work. Did you make that immediately? What was the, 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 the story from there? I feel like the big struggle is like the consistency of getting that work. And that was kind of like, I'm going to make $500 a week either way. And so it was putting all of my energy into what are the angles that I can generate income streams from. And luckily my wife, um, I have a great support system. So like her pushing me to say like, oh, you know, you're doing great. Like, don't get down. Like, don't let, you know, 10 seconds of a bad day ruin the rest of the week, like just get over it. I was like, cool. That's a, that's a good wife. That's a real good wife. <laughs> well, we jokingly said when we got married that we were going to take over the world. And that was seven years ago. And so far we're getting close to taking over the world in our own way. She's a very talented hairstylist, but I just was going to do it either way. Like it didn't matter what I was going to photograph at that point. It was less about being in the niche that I want and more about just making photos for money. So that's what I did. And I kept going for it. And then a little later, a photographer that I assisted started doing some consulting work and he'd been in business for 18 years. So I picked his brain and he was basically just like, you've got to learn to be just as competent with your camera as you are with your like business sense and tactics. Like it's, it'll become a second nature thing. You'll be able to trust your instincts when it comes to making bids and estimates. Because I've made estimates before that either I don't get a call back or they're like, wow, this is way too expensive. And then they just, they leave. There's no room to negotiate. And like, I used to take things like that personally. I remember actually the very first estimate I made out of school, I was like 22 and it was like in Microsoft Word for a gym. And I was like, okay, well, you know, commercial photographers charge usage. So I had a day rate and usage. And then when the guy called back, he's like, what the hell is this usage stuff? It's my gym. And I was like, yeah, and they're my photos of your gym. Uh, and he ultimately was like, no, not going to work. And I was like, well, I did everything like I thought I was supposed to do it. And turns out it, it wasn't that way. So a lot of trial and error. I mean, it took me a while to reframe failure as like, well, you don't do it that way. Let's go. It's like the formula 409. There's 408 formulas that didn't work. And I just kept, I mean, I guess it's being a little bit tenacious or developing the idea that it's a war of attrition uh, helped a lot. So slowly moved in, then got into email marketing. Shout out to Active Campaign. Happy customer for like seven years now. <laughs> I was like a little hesitant at first because like, there's also that fear of like, are you being pushy or like you have to kind of get out of your own head and it's like, it's a business. Like Coca-Cola slams Coca-Cola into your face every day. Every day. I uh, had another photographer that I had assisted. He was kind of a mentor and that's kind of his thing was like, people spend money on everything. 
They see advertising all the time. It's not any different. If they don't like it, they'll ignore it or they'll tell you to go away. People unsubscribe from my email list. That's okay. I'm not mad about it. I'll just add some more people as time goes on. But then thinking about how Mercedes-Benz will spend millions of dollars in advertising, but how many people actually drive a Mercedes-Benz? Not a lot of people, but they're going to keep putting it out there. So don't be defeated by one day. Like just keep pushing as hard as you can and take some breaks. There were some times where like mentally I was like, do I even want to do this anymore? Like, do I give up? Like, is this all that it is? And then a little bit more mindset work and it, it worked out. So now, I mean, the flywheel's spinning and I don't see it stopping. So you, you said something about reframing failure. I think very valuable skill to have. And I do believe that's whether either it's a skill or it's a character trait. I don't really know yet. Cause I don't know, I don't know how to teach it. So I don't know if it's a skill, but reframing failure is one of the single most important parts of being an entrepreneur. Because if you are not failing as an entrepreneur, you are absolutely not trying at all and you're not going to succeed. That's, that's a guarantee. I guarantee you, if you are not failing on a regular basis, you will not succeed ever in anything that is worth doing. And so looking at failure that way brings this amount of freedom to us as, especially as creatives where we put our heart and souls into what we do to when we fail, if we, if we can reframe it and look at it that way, when we fail, that just means we are growing. It does not mean we are a failure. It just means we have hit a, we've learned a lesson. We've learned it the hard way and we know what not to do the next time. So you, you said something that caught my ear also is you said something that this is the war of attrition. What did you mean by that? The war of attrition. I like military, uh, analogies and whatnot, but. You are just going to keep the war machine going until you win. Like that's usually conventional warfare. That's like America's go-to. It's like, we're just going to be here. We have everything that we need to just pour it on you forever. Vietnam's a good example, even though the, the result wasn't so great. It was just keep doing it and eventually you'll win. Is it just essentially saying out surviving? Like the other people will all fall off eventually if I just stick around long enough? Yeah, it, there's, it's like outworking everybody. My brother used to play tennis in high school and his coach would make them like run sprints and do all this crazy stuff after practice. And they were like, what's the deal? He's like, if you guys go to a third set, they're going to be out of gas and you're going to beat them just because you are conditioned. You might not even be the best tennis player, but you have the chops. And there are a lot of talented people in the world. And the only way to like differentiate yourself is to just keep your nose down and just keep going. Like I want to keep being the best I can where it's like I talked with a retoucher friend and Michelangelo's his inspiration. Not because it's Michelangelo, one of the greatest sculptors of all time. At 80 something years old, he was still breaking stone to try and get better. He did the Pieta 24. He could have been like, I'm done guys. But instead he just kept going for it because of that passion. Like if you're going to run a business that's creatively minded and you only want to do it for money you probably won't do well like the passion and the work creates the result of money well let's talk about that how do you balance because we're called a six-figure creative and that puts a an icky connotation to a lot of people because they don't like this idea of mixing passion with money but i'll tell you right now just from my perspective is i would much rather make a living doing what i love than to separate money and passion completely. But when you're doing something that you are passionate about, which for you, I believe is photography, how do you balance the, the, the conversation of passion and money? How does that sit in your head? I have projects. I'm working on a project now. Hopefully it'll be done in a year. It's a big series of portraits. But 
it's very much on the passion art side. Like I'm spending a lot of money to make one photo between propping and sets. And it really, it's like a door song. Come on, baby, light my fire. Like it's really pushing me creatively. And it's one of those things where it might cost me 500 to a thousand dollars to make this one photo. But when it's all finished, I know in my heart of hearts that the result is going to get a lot of attention from commercially creative people. There's the potential of like, I don't really enter photos in competitions for awards because it's like, it's like winning the local, like best photographer of whatever. And it's like, well, how many people actually voted on this? And like, what does it really matter? Like, I don't need a superlative, but I got to get it out of my head. It's like brain crack. Like it's festering. This idea has been there and I got to get it out. And if I don't get it out, it'll be a problem. But the end result is going to be something I can be proud of. And it's already starting to give me another gear of what's possible. Just trusting my ideas. So this, this is super interesting for me because one of the things that I hear the most since we rebranded to the six figure creative and we're talking to more creative minded people in other freelance uh, niches and industries is that a lot of our listeners complain when I talk to somebody who works in the corporate world because they don't ever want to work with corporate clients. They want to work with whatever, I don't know, whatever tickles their fancy. And this is where we kind of have that conversation of passion versus money. And, and you kind of, you, that story you just told was a really good example to me of what sort of opportunities you have when you're working with clients with actual budgets, because yes, you're putting a lot of money into that, but you're also getting paid. I would imagine a decent amount of money from that client as well for the entirety of the year to make that sort of project happen. And, and we don't have those opportunities when we're working with broke clients. I'll tell you right now, I, I've said this many times in my past, and I, I think it even more today than I did in the past, that I would rather work in a industry I'm passionate about with skills that I'm passionate about, skills that I enjoy with clients who have money, but I'm not necessarily you know, in that world. I'm not the corporate guy. I'm not the suit and tie guy. I'd much rather be with that type of client if there's budgets than to be with the super broke client whose number one ob uh, objection is always money and never has any sort of money to pay. Like That's a really tough business to get in. And to me, the stress of having to close those broke clients will weigh on me so much that it will hurt my creativity. But working with clients with budgets to where I have the freedom to do a little bit more because I have larger budgets, to me, that opens up more creativity in my brain, not only because I'm more financially secure, but because there is is the actual budget there to have the freedom and to, to be creative. So I don't know how you feel about that, Daniel, but that's kind of the vibe I got from that story. Yeah. And, and to clarify the, the portrait project is just personal for me. Oh, so I misunderstood that. Yeah. I'm the client in this situation. And if I don't get it out of my head, it's going to literally uh, be the end of me probably, but I've started it. My thing is it's like, you've got to do projects for yourself. Like the moment you, and it happened to me, like I stopped making photos and doing anything that I actually liked. And it was all about like, let me get a client. Let me do this. Let me do that. And you kind of need both to like, someone made like a, an analogy about like faith. Um, when you're a kid, the glass is small. So a little bit of water fills it up completely. You get older, the glass gets bigger, same amount of water doesn't work. And it's kind of the same idea is like, you got to replenish your creative person level and you've got a business and they all need to be in line. Like if you don't have good sleep, you're probably not going to uh, do very well. But getting back to the clients with budgets, I would much rather work with the people that are valuing, they're spending a lot of money to get something done. They want to have the creative meetings. They want to know, they want to build a shot list. And 
like I've got a, in December, I've got three days of headshots and like corporate lifestyle for an investment company. It's really, it's going to be great. I'm going to photograph everybody in the business. They've got, I think 60, 65 employees. I'm going to do some photos of them. Like there are, people might not think investment companies are cool, but this is like one that's a newer kind of, I wouldn't say they're a startup at this point, but they, you know, ping pong table, kind of like a Google culture vibe. Yeah, like a West, a West Coast startup is what I call that. West Coast companies have that same kind of vibe. And East Coast is where you see the old school, like 80s business class where they're like suit and tie. West Coast, very different. Yeah, this is a, you know, you can have gauges in your ears and work at this investment company. Yeah, you can have neck and hand tattoos. <laughs> right. They've got a really cool office. So part of going into that was they just wanted headshots. And when I saw their office, I was like, you could do a lot of really great culture shots. It's going to, enrich the the company's like internal brand equity versus like people like saying they work for a cool company it becomes like an identity like you work for apple and you're like i work for apple bro Ooh, cool but i love talking to people so doing 60 getting to meet 60 people i can ask them a bunch of questions get them comfortable with being in a lot of people don't like getting their photo taken um especially because it's the company's making them like they might have, you know, I don't want to get it. It's like, well, we're all trying to be on brand here. So we need the same look across the board, but getting them comfortable, making them laugh, learning something about them, especially over the pandemic. Like a lot of people learned how to bake bread. Were you one of those people? I was, man. I made a sourdough uh, starter. It lasted for a, over a year before it died. Wow. I baked many, many, many dozens of sourdough loaves, which sourdough is so hard to do, but I, I got, I got it down. That's awesome. That, and that, I would say that that kind of falls into like a, a creative project for yourself. Like people needed time to do something, but it's old world. We learned how to can. We canned and made marinara, which was super fun. You can buy a lot of tomatoes at the uh, farmer's market. I also started growing tomatoes and made my own homemade marinara with that, with the sourdough pizza dough that I made with my sourdough star. I got real nerdy over the last year and a half. That's like the basis of winning like a James Beard Award or a Michelin star. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. Before we get into the podcast today, let me tell you a little something crazy about myself. I'm actually a psychic, and I'm going to prove it to you. You and I, we've probably never met, but I bet I can describe your business better than you can. Here's what my crystal ball says. You probably have no idea how to get clients other than waiting around for referrals and word of mouth. You're stuck in a perpetual cycle of feast or famine, so you have wild income swings from month to month. You're charging way less than you should and you know it, but you don't do anything about it. You feel like you have a million things you could be doing in your business and you have no idea what you should be focusing on. And you have tons of little half-built bridges leading to nowhere because you've jumped from thing to thing to thing as a dabbler. Am I right? Does this sound eerily similar to you? That's because I've been in your shoes and I've worked with thousands of freelancers who've also been there. So I'm not a psychic. My crystal ball is not real. I just have a really clear understanding of what freelancers are facing today. And if I can predict your problems you can bet I actually have a solution to these problems. It's called client acquisition. We talk about this all the time on the podcast, but for some reason, freelancers still haven't really figured this out yet. This is why I created Clients by Design Coaching. It's a truly unique coaching program that helps you build your own client acquisition machine so you can break out of this feast or famine cycle that most freelancers never escape. So here's how our approach is unique. First, we do a deep dive on your business, we figure out what's missing, and we give you a complete marketing roadmap right from the start. So no more dabbling, no more guesswork, just a clear path to getting more clients. You always know what your next step is because we actually assign specific tasks to you. So instead of feeling overwhelmed, instead of feeling scattered, you can just focus on your next step. 
That's it. We give you unlimited feedback on everything you do so you can feel confident that every single step you're taking is the right one. And we hold you accountable, not by nagging you, but just by genuinely supporting and cheering you on every step of the way. If you're behind on any steps we've assigned to you, we'll proactively reach out and see how we can help. Clients by Design is not a course. We look at it like a partnership. We'll always show up. We'll always give you what you need, but you have to be willing to put in the work. This program is not for everyone, and that is okay. As of right now, I just checked the numbers. We've only approved about 25% of the applicants we've gotten so far, and that's because we are selective. We only accept your application if we believe we can truly help you. So if you're ready to end your feast or famine cycle and build a client acquisition machine, you can apply for Clients by Design by going to sixfigurecreative.com slash coach. That's the number sixfigurecreative.com slash coach. Now here's our show. So let's let's talk about that just real quick because I have so many, you've brought up so many cool things I want to chat with you about. But real quick, do you get fulfillment on the creative side from your corporate clients? Or is it purely like it's a business and, and I and I take it as that? I think it kind of depends, but for the most part, like I love making photos. So I get a lot of fulfillment out, out of just like seeing cool stuff. So latest job was for a cable manufacturer. They have a giant plant in Charleston. It was like being on how it's made or like, a, even though it wasn't dirty, but like a dirty jobs show for about seven hours. I got to fly a drone. It was a good time and learning about how it's made from start to finish. Plus these people that work there, they are excited about the company they work for and they're ready to tell you everything about it. So usually just being genuinely interested in what the people are doing and trying to learn all you can so you can best tell the story is huge. And I like cool stuff. It doesn't matter if it's, you would think cable, making cables is boring. But when you see it actually happening and all the people it takes to make what will end up being like a 40 mile cable is insane. And it's also for the future. I mean, it's going to be for green energy. It's for wind farms and they have to be pretty far away because people don't want to ruin their, you know, beachside view with, you know, a hundred windmills. That's awesome, man. So it's the funny, the skills you listed there, all the skills that you have to have in order to get the story and have a good conversation. It's literally the same skill set you have to have as a podcaster, which is interesting. So I'm going to become a podcaster next. I think so. I think you will. So let's, let's, let's talk about another subject, which is, is getting these larger projects. Cause I, I don't know many people working with like wind farms. I don't know many people working with, you know, investment companies with like 60 plus employees and you're head, doing headshots and, and, and lifestyle shoots for all of them. Like these seems like pretty big projects. So how do, are these at this point in your career, is it just all referral based or are you doing something else to get these projects? It's a mix of referrals and I've, I got, it's sort of like a serendipitous sort of thing. I had photographed a young model and her father is a producer in town and at a, it's like through Facebook messenger or something on like a Saturday night. He was like, hey, man, are you available to photograph four subjects on white out of town Monday? And I was like, this Monday? It's Saturday at nine. And he's like, yeah, I think so. I'll confirm with the producer. So on Sunday, the producer calls me and it's Discovery Channel. And they had, they use Getty images to book their photographers normally. And there was a communication mix up where they booked the photographer in the wrong city and state and they didn't know about it until Friday evening. And so they scrambled and he reached out to my buddy because he's in Charlotte and the shoot was in North Carolina and talked to him. He's like, I was like, I can totally do it. And he's like, we well, need to get a negative PCR test. Got to get an assistant with a negative PCR test. So I luckily have 
some really good friends that are great photographers that we kind of will in situations like this, it's like, I got you, bro. Like we can do this. He ran out, got a PCR test. I got mine. We drove uh, four hours to the location and then photographed four cast members for the reality show, You, Me, and My Ex on TLC. And then it got me signed with Getty. So I'm now on their global roster. So I get calls that it's usually regional stuff because nobody's really flying anybody anywhere right now. And then I have another agency out of Paris called Kappa and they'll call me for, they do a lot of corporate industrial work. That's the majority of their clients. Like you had mentioned Salesforce. The job I got through Salesforce is because they were doing profiles on people at Michelin tires that are using Salesforce in really creative ways. So I just, I photographed, I think it was two different shoots. It was four people total for, they were doing like a Salesforce convention in Paris. But yeah, it's, I, I like the corporate clients. They're usually ready to make something happen. And they have like, they've done it before. They've bought and licensed images before. So there's not really a huge like learning section when I'm like, yeah, so my day rate is X and your usage is Y. And they're like, well, why are we paying for usage? I was like, oh, it's kind of like you can't get Coldplay songs for your commercial unless you pay Coldplay. And then a little more, I've got, I have a, I wrote a lot of like SOPs, if you will, or like informational things where it like breaks down like what you're paying for and the type of usage that you can use. If someone's local, it's like a local ad, it's obviously not going to carry the same usage as uh, a national ad. So you said something, there's SOPs, that's standard operating procedures is what it stands for. Those are the nerdy, nerdy business speak for, for those of you who are not following along, which is great. I mean, this is good. This is stuff we all need to know. Totally. But it sounded like very random. The, the connection you got, the, got the, t- the, the Discovery Channel connection, which led to the Getty Images thing. But I, I'll tell you right now, there's a quote that I live by. And this sounds like it's a lucky thing, right? It sounds like a lucky break that you got through a connection or whatever. But this quote that I love is, the harder I work, the luckier I get. And I just want to say that right now because so many people are like, well, I don't have this random Facebook message coming in at 9 p.m. on a Saturday night to get me a huge gig Monday that's going to change the trajectory of my career. Like, I don't get that. It's because you didn't do the the eight plus, 10 plus years of work that led up to that point. Like, how many years had you been taking photographs, Daniel, before that message hit your inbox? Probably 10 years. I like the quote. It's sort of like the same as, I don't know if it's like Epictetus or Cato, but it's, I think, I think it's Seneca actually. Luck is when opportunity meets preparedness. So I can guarantee you if you were like, like you said, oh, I don't have this lucky message coming in. My critique would be, could you pull it off if they called you? Because there was a lot of moving parts to me driving four hours with an assistant getting a PCR test, doing a Zoom. I had five or six art directors on Zoom looking at a second monitor while I'm photographing these people in my studio was the living room of the cast's house. So I moved all the furniture out of the way, put up a nine foot seamless, lit the set, got them to approve the look. And then we went through doing individuals of all four duos, trios, mixing, matching, and giving them a lot of direction because they want those kind of catty photos for their ads. Like if you go to, I think it's the title, tlc.com for that show is a picture we did in their living room. And they're like, I don't know if it's like pushing someone away or like pretending to choke them or whatever, but it's, they wanted this tension in these photos. But at this point, they're all, it's called you, me and my ex, but they're all friends. They're all clearly get along, but we had to kind of dig into like, 
at some point they hated each other. And let's bring that out. You tell all those things, and, and for our non-photographer listeners right now that might have zoned out during that entire description, like there's a point of this that is really important that I want to drive home to anyone listening right now is Daniel exhibited this very important trait that we have to have as entrepreneurs to be successful, and that's called FITFO, F-I-T-F-O, figure it the F out. And what he did was figure it the F out. He wanted the gig. He figured it the F out. He got all of those things into place. And where someone might have dropped the ball or said, this is too complicated or too scary or too hard, Daniel figured it out. And he got the rewards that came from that. So that's that's an important thing to have for all of us. Now, this week, I just launched a new YouTube video. So by the time you're watching or listening or watching this interview, it will have been last week's YouTube video. I launched a video called the, I don't remember what I called it, but it's essentially what I call the word of mouth death trap. And in that video, I talk about the lie that is word of mouth advertising because I hear people like Daniel who are getting most of his clients kind of by referrals, word of mouth, you know, somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody kind of thing. And they don't understand that people that make it to your level are the ones who, for lack of a better term, James, get the bleep out for a second. They ate for eight years and then they were, they, they had enough momentum to, to, to break over the edge. They weren't one of the people who your war of attrition, one of the people that fell off the wayside and didn't quite make it to where you're at right now. But this has your entire career been, you've just been slowly building up that word of mouth snowball or did you have other means of getting clients earlier on that led to the word of mouth clients you're getting today? It was like a struggle for me in the beginning to like truly market myself. And like, I ended up getting a lot of referrals for assisting work and I still get them today. I will usually just send them to like all the other guys I know that are assisting or I've been thinking about making like a database for Charlotte freelancers, but it was a word of mouth for a while. And now it's mostly email marketing. I think every industry is small if in certain uh, circles, but you know, you do a really good job on a photo shoot and a producer likes you then they're going to keep giving you calls. And it's I've made a lot of friends with the people that get calls from other clients that are looking for a photographer. I get more inquiries now, but in the beginning, it was a producer or an art director I had worked with before. Word of mouth marketing, I can see how it can be like, some people say, oh, it's the best thing ever. And it's like, well, it's not consistent at all. It is if you are staying 100% booked up all the time. Like it's the best thing in the world because you don't have to pay for it. But the, the, the problem that you, that you get is it takes a long time and a lot of happy clients before you get your calendar full. And even then it can be feast or famine. That's why that's kind of the gist of the video. There's a lot more that goes into it. So go watch the YouTube video. Anyone listening right now, Daniel, you don't need to watch it because you're already there. But you, you mentioned email marketing multiple times now. And I, I can't believe I hadn't brought this up yet. What, what, what are you doing? What are you exactly doing with email marketing? I, try to send basically like it's almost like two newsletters a month and it's usually based around a blog post or some other content that I've made and I'm kind of like when I added a tear sheet section to my website I said you know hey I hope everybody's doing great you know whatever month it was very personal like you know the weather's changing in Charlotte and you know taking my kids out to the greenway a lot and I've got a new section of tear sheets I'm really excited about you can, you know, learn more about it here. Give them a link. I usually put some large photo of a project I've worked on recently. It might be one of the tier sheets that are in the tier sheet portfolio, or I'll do like a case study. Like I did, I think one on the TLC reality show in images and kind of told the story of how it all happened and how they would be used and where. And then I think in that one, I also showed all the places they used it because they put them everywhere. Like I thought they would, which is great. 
or I'll do a blog that's kind of like explaining some sort of photo jargon. Or I did one on all the different people that go, because like it's not a photo, a commercial photo shoot is a lot of moving parts and a lot of people working together for one thing. It's not just me. Like if I didn't have quality assistants, stylists, hair and makeup artists, like it would not work. So I don't know. It's like anything I can do in the email marketing that's just kind of shedding light on what I'm doing. And it kind of helps build my, my credit and my, my clout a little bit where it's like, oh, he's continually putting out a blog that says, here's how I made these clients happy. I got work that, that directly from doing this previous hedge, I photographed 30 people at an agency. They loved the images. They turned out fantastic. I did a blog on you know, doing a creative agency. I ended up doing a really great environmental portrait of their president founder, you know, a group shot of them outside their, it's like an old home in Charlotte. It was built in like 1909 on their like front steps. And uh, the investment company saw the photos and they're like, these are great photos. So let's give this guy a call. And it worked out really well. Like it's, I think if you just do, if you do good enough work, people want to know who made it is one thing, especially if they're looking for someone that can handle the volume of doing 30 portraits in a day. I was very tired after that day. Yeah. The, the 30 to 60 people in one gig is, is gotta be, again, that's something I can't comprehend because I'm not a photographer who specializes or has done that in my past. But you, would you say that, that email marketing has been worth the time and effort you've put into it? Cause this is an area that I don't see a lot of creatives focused on. Yeah. And it's one of those things where like, I can't be mad at myself, but I would say like, I should have done it sooner because it kind of opened my eyes to just a different world where it's like, if we want to get back to like war analogies, like I'm trying to be aggressive on all fronts, not just the, I'm a good image maker. I'm also a marketer. I'm also, you know, now I'm outsourcing a lot of tedious work, like trying to find the best systems so I can focus on what I do best, which is making photos of people and being I guess the best conduit for getting their personality out of a situation they might not be comfortable in. Like I think trying to disarm people's hesitance to being photographed is, can be difficult because you, like if you work with a model, that's their job. Like they'll hit every pose you want, but when you've got to work with someone who might be shy, a little timid, like you've got to find a way to get into their, get past their armor and realize it's not that big a deal. I'm going to make you, I'm here to make you look awesome. Like that's the, the number one goal. Yeah. So, I mean, I, 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 we don't have a ton of time to dive into that. I would love to get into the, the passing off tedious tasks a bit, but let's go back really quick. You, with, with the email marketing, one last question there is like, how are you actually building your email list? I started with scouring LinkedIn for every single person that would hire me, marketing directors, creative directors, art directors. and then. We just put them on my list. And the idea was they can unsubscribe if they don't want it because I think that works in some countries more than others. You do that in the UK. I'm pretty sure that's illegal. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was like, uh, you know, I try, I would try to friend, like connect with them on LinkedIn and like sometimes it wouldn't happen and people would unsubscribe or they don't ever open it. But my list mainly is built from anytime I get an inquiry to work with someone, they've got a, my form's a little more complicated than most standard like Squarespace forms. Yeah, you have uh, what I would, I would call it a high friction form is what I call it in, in our world. Low friction is usually just like name, email, message kind of thing. High friction is like, you're going to answer a bunch of questions. And that way, if you get through this, I know you're serious. No, totally. Like, I don't want to have to waste like there's that's why there's a budget question where it's like, 
are you serious about what you're doing? Cool. Tell me a little bit about it. And then it gives me a better scope of work and then I can dive into it. So, so they're added to your form or they're added to your email list once they fill out your inquiry form. Any other methods you're using to build? Yeah. Anytime I do a job, you never know where people are going to go or remember you. So like, for example, with the headshot job, I requested to have every single person's email because sometimes I have to send all the web galleries individually to people to make their own selects. Sometimes they have someone who does like a sort of rough edit so that their like employees aren't overwhelmed. So I get 60 something emails uh, at the end of this month and they'll all go on the email list and they can unsubscribe if they want to. And then anytime I do a job and anytime there's like a Zoom meeting or a creative meeting with lots of different people, if they're on that meeting and I have their email, I'll add them to uh, the list or I'll like tell them like, hey guys, you know, you don't mind. I'm going to add you to my email list so we can stay in contact. And it's just anytime I get someone's information and they're in that category of being able to hire me or at least maybe in a meeting bring up like, oh, we need anybody know a photographer? Oh, well, I know a guy. I keep getting his email. I think it's important to not be afraid of putting yourself out there for your business. Like some people get a little nervous wanting to send an email or like reach out to someone like it's not going to hurt anybody's feelings like unless you're like really mean in the email but just be as a friend his thing was like i'm just going to kill people with kindness in like a very like methodical way it's not like he's trying to be necessarily the most kind person but he knows that he's going to get more what is it you catch more flies with honey so just genuinely be an excited, happy person that's looking to make opportunities for yourself. Like nobody, especially in America, like the bootstrap idea, it's like, just go out and make it happen. It's possible. Might take you 10 years, but it's possible. But I want it now, Daniel. No, I, I, I totally agree with that, man. Cause it, it, I, I put a note from something you said really early in this interview and it was, it was something I was going to bring back up if I had time, but it was the, the idea of being pushy in your marketing. And that's something that's, that I'd say most creatives are allergic to marketing because they're afraid of being pushy. And my note here says pushy versus irrelevant. And I think that's one thing that we have to understand as creatives. If we're trying to actually make a living doing what we love, being, being willing to get out of our comfort zone and even erring on the side of pushy, which I guarantee if you, if you go the pushy route a hundred percent of the time, your actual filter will keep you from ever being actually pushy. What it will do is allow you to at least become relevant. You'll never actually make it to the push. It takes a lot to be pushy. Let's be honest. Like what, what happens is us being afraid of being pushy means that we never actually take any steps to become relevant in the first place. We will never even make it to the pushy place. That's because we're so far the other way that we just stay irrelevant. And I think that's something that you've, you've done with the email marketing. And, and I'll, I'll tell you right now, I, I have like tens of thousands of people on my email list at this point, and I still get nervous sending out an email to that many people, but it's one of those things that I, I made the decision. I'm going to, I'm not going to be irrelevant and I make sure that what I'm doing is adding value to people's lives. It's not taking, it's giving. And I think that's one way that I can justify sending emails to tens of thousands of people. Even if I get unsubscribes, again, that's just somebody that's not gelling well with my message. So that's just something worth, worth mentioning. Shifting gear, gears real quick here, just because we kind of wrap up this conversation. Pricing. This is an area I don't have a lot of experience in when it comes to the photography side of things. And you mentioned a few things that kind of piqued my interest for me to even bring this conversation up is pricing. Because you're working with, to me, it seems like pretty big projects, larger clients, bigger types of clients where you're doing like 60 headshots is no small project is what I'm saying. Have you, and, and I'm not going to get into the specifics of what you would 
price for that. That's 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 we don't have to get into that that deep into it. But but there's different monetization models and different freelance industries really excel in some of these. There is like the retainer model where you're getting like a flat monthly fee to, to be on call to do things. There's like flat fee projects where you're saying I will do this entire project for a flat fee. There's like the hour or day rate where you're charging per hour or per day. There is passive income where like if you're putting your, at least in the photography world, putting your images up on like Getty Images or putting it up on some of these sites where you're getting a commission for when people pay for your rights for your image. And then there's usage, which you mentioned. And I would love for you to kind of dive into what you found works best in your world, in your niche, in the photography world, specifically working with corporate clients. I find that a day rate partnered with a usage rate and then your production charges. So for example, with the headshots, I have a day rate that includes image capture, retouching, set construction, delivery, and then I have a usage line for, they will most likely use them internally, but my guess is that every single employee that's going to become their LinkedIn photo, they're going to use them in any sort of like creative briefs or anything because they're an investment company. So you might like want to see who's managing your money if you don't have a face-to-face with them. They most likely won't use them for advertising. So it'll be below the line usage where it's just marketing, email marketing, internal use. Above the line would be actual advertising where you're buying ad space. So all of that together has worked out for me because it, it it's sort of itemized, but the creative fee is based on 10 hours. Whether it takes 10 hours or not is like, sometimes you'll have people like, oh, well, we've got you for another three hours. It's like, I completed the scope of work. It doesn't work like that. You went them off the floor. And then I've got standard lines of usage for above the line, below the line. And then if it's, sometimes they'll ask for images in perpetuity. And usually I just have like a, a multiplying factor for that. And then I try to anchor higher sometimes, just give me some room to work the estimate out. Sometimes people see the estimate and they kind of like, are like, are you serious? Like you're just pushing a button. And it's like, yeah, well, it's more complicated than that. And then the production charges, like I'll have a hair and makeup artist and assistant. I'll have a gear that I'm renting. I'll have, they wanted a specific color of seamless backdrop. So I'll have to go buy that and mark that up. But I think the creative fee, once they see like they're getting all this value in a day, it's not just me being there. It's me coordinating beforehand in pre-production. And then taking over after the job in post-production, like the galleries aren't going to make themselves. The photos are not going to retouch themselves, but it's all work you're never going to see me do. And, and that I think works well for commercial work. I know my friends that do weddings, they usually just have like three packages that spell out what they want. And they're usually working towards pushing them to the middle and they might have like a la carte items. And, but I think everybody should figure out what they want to, what they want to make for a day of providing their skill and service and not be too low. Would you say you're on the more premium side of pricing compared to your competitors? I would say maybe about average for the commercial photographers in town that have been really working at it. But in, in the general photography space, is that are you on the more premium side though compared to like the average photographer? Maybe. I kind of look like there's certain levels because it's like I'm not doing a lot of national advertising and you know like the true like what is it I think people always the rumor is that like Nike's advertising day rate is $20,000 a day for a complete buyout of your images which is cool but I mean I've worked with some photographers that I know for a fact they they've made $24,000 a day for five days 
as their usage and day rate together. And that's like the high end of advertising. Yeah, I haven't really thought about it from like, if I'm premium or not, I've just like put it to where it's like, I want to make the best possible rates that I can because I have a mortgage and kids and I definitely don't want quote unquote a real job because I'm not built for a nine to five. And I don't think you are either. My last job was, uh, was GameStop when I was like 18 or 19. The reason I asked that is because like, I, I, I always like, I've put a lot of thought and effort and even testing into pricing and, and all things that I do, whether it's Airbnb, whether it's like my freelance stuff, whether it's like courses and things I have, like I have found time and time again, being at the top of the pricing market, being the most expensive option in, in your circle of, of whatever is always a better business because I've, i found that charging 50% more means at worst, you have half the amount of clients, which means you make the same as everyone else while working half the time. But what, what is really interesting and a curious thing to think on is when you double your prices compared to your competitor and you work as half as much, you, you really don't actually usually have half the clients. Usually you lose about a third of your clientele, which means you're working two thirds as much, making twice the amount of money. And it's, it's really interesting to see that play out in a bunch of different kind of industries. And, and it just seems to, to play out from, from, for me, at least in all the areas I've tested and in some of the conversations I've had with friends that it just makes an easier business because I still think you're up in the upper end because the, I, I can just tell just talking to you and some of the stuff we've talked about beforehand and the kind of clients you're working with and the kind of photographers that I know you're probably in the upper end of, of photographers as a whole, but it's just a lesson for our, our listeners is like when you start being the cheapest person because you want to be busy all the time, I guarantee if you took your income at the end of the month and you divided it by the amount of hours that you put in at the end of that same month, you would cringe at what that number that spit out of your actual earnings per hour. Because I did this with someone I know recently and they thought they were making $60 an hour. They were making $15 an hour. That was the reality of their situation when we actually did this, did this exercise. And it's because they're not, they're not in the premium upper echelon of the pricing in their, in their niche. So it's, just, it's always a thing I love talking about with that. That kind of leads me into the, me outsourcing certain services where it's, I'm looking at my time as being valued at mostly $100 an hour. So like, why would I do something that's $10 an hour on like the value scale. So I'm losing $90 in reality. So it's like finding systems that work to where like, I also like being a very efficient photographer with my time, not only with subjects, but with finishing the project. So if I shoot and finish a job on Thursday, I want to by next Thursday, have everything done and delivered. How have you gotten that sort of workflow down? Like what, what is it that you do to, to keep that sort of organized and, and on schedule and flowing that well? It's a lot of outsourcing the like, like for example, like in headshots, I will send all the headshots off to retouching firms. I've got a couple of them that I use that are like, they're okay at this, they're great at that. And it's like spending the time testing and figuring out who's who. And then I've got retouchers on the super premium end that are you know, not in India or Bangladesh. They're here in the States or they're in the UK. They are perfect for advertising clients or something that's super high end. I mean, it's where there is a budget where it's like the retouching might be $4,000 to make five images look the way they're supposed to look. So I've got those in place where I know that, okay, the turnaround time on this service is two days and I'll just send it all out and kind of project manage at that point. 
And then when they get back to me, review them, make sure they're good. And then a lot of times the images, I will tone them in Photoshop to match my kind of look where it's like, I don't care how the photos are cleaned up as long as they get to a certain standard. And then I will apply the look that either the client has specified or I'm into at the time or whatever it is. So it's just finding the right vendors to make it all work. But most people are surprised at how fast they get their images back. And it kind of just like, I wouldn't say it would like weighs on me, but like, I want to make sure that I'm on top of everything. There's always horror stories of, you know, oh, I got married and it's been a year and I still don't have my photos yet. That's crazy. It gets back to the word of mouth things. People are like, oh yeah, he took six months to get me my photos back. It's just not a cool thing. Yeah, that's that's the opposite of word of mouth. That will that's a snowball that'll actually go against you because I mean it takes a long time to build up a a, wor- a good of word of mouth snowball that brings word of mouth referrals to you constantly. It takes no time at all to build a, a anti word of mouth snowball of people that are hating on you because you you screwed over your clients or you didn't get back to them in time or you took forever a year for wedding photos. I can't even imagine. I would be so mad. If that were me, and I would, I would do whatever I could to ruin that photographer's reputation if I had to wait that long. Well, most people don't like if you have a really good service or a really great experience. Most people don't leave a Yelp review for good service, but they will leave you a one star review. It like it's like they're they're writing the review as they're leaving the restaurant. I can't believe that this was blah blah blah. I've never done that before, by the way. I think doing a good job often goes unnoticed, but doing a bad job normally gets amplified. So just do a good job. Do the best job you can. Like be, you're in service of clients. I want it to be the best photo they have of them. It's really them. They show everybody. They like looking at it. They're proud to exhibit this version of them. People say photos don't lie. And Richard Avedon famously said, all of mine lie. They're all lies. So. Yeah, I'm just I'm just really focused on trying to do the best job I can always, whatever the situation is. Well, I can say that you've you've done the best job you can on this podcast by spending the last hour plus with us on here and, and sharing your uh, breadth of knowledge with us. So I want to say thank you for coming on here. Is there anywhere you want to send our listeners uh, to connect with you or find out more about you? Yeah, they can go to DanielClarkCunningham.com slash land a corporate gig. Um, and I've got a form they can fill out. And I... If they want to talk about what they could do or they just want to tell me what they're already doing and maybe we could tweak something or if you're a creative person and you want to be fulfilled in like doing what you do, you've got to get clients that appreciate you. And like I had someone call me that needed portraits, forget what it was, but they were really kind of pushy on the front end with my time. And then when I sent them an estimate, it was like ghost town. And when I followed up, oh yeah, we decided we didn't want to do it because of X, Y, and Z. And it's because it probably costs too much, honestly. But they were real excited to get my time until they realized what it was going to actually be. Because I'm not going into any photo shoot unprepared. I'm going to do a lot of, especially if it's somebody like NASCAR drivers. I'm going to find out everything about a NASCAR driver. Like, did you race go-karts at 13? Did you win this at that? Like, I need to know these things so that I can be real comfortable having a conversation and figure out what not to talk about or reaching out to their people and be like, do they have like poses they don't do? Some NASCAR drivers will not do certain poses, which is funny, but I get it. But just being prepared. But yeah, if they want to talk and chat, I'm up for it for sure. Luckily with my kids in school, I have 
Monday through Friday open to work, even though I'm picking them up earlier. I mean, let's see, what time is it now? Probably time to go pick them up. <laughs> I got 30 minutes. There you go. This is great, Brian. I really appreciate uh, you reaching out and us doing this. It's been uh, fun. Maybe next time, if you're in town, we'll actually connect instead of you just listening to me marry people. <laughs> That's so true, dude. 